The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. guest today is fellow to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, Professor William A. Tiller of Stanford University's Department of Material Science, spent 34 years in academia after nine years as an advisory physicist with the Westinghouse Research Laboratories. He's published over 250 conventional scientific papers, three books and several patents. In parallel for over 30 years, he has been avocationally pursuing serious experimental and theoretical study of the field of psychoenergetics, which will very likely become an integral part of tomorrow's physics. In this new area, he has published an additional 100 scientific papers and four seminal books. Professor Bill Tiller back with me today for the second in our series of three programs. Uh, Bill, good afternoon to you. And good afternoon to you, David. Pleasure to be with you. And you. We completed the last program, I think, around the period in Oxford, the sabbatical, as it were. Uh, we talked about your work there and where your life was continuing and interaction or collaboration between the conventional and the unconventional, as it were, with your work. Where was it that you left off after that period, how did you put that into a box with then moving on to Stanford? Where, where, did, where were your conclusions about yourself at that time? Well, my conclusions about myself was, were that uh, I was going to do something that I thought was much more important for humankind than my orthodox science at Stanford, and that somehow I had to do it had to be done, someone had to do it who was competent, and so I decided I had to do it. And then I figured out how I could do it in the sense that it was necessary for me to clear up time without taking it away from the active teaching and research at Stanford because I needed the day job to feed my family, but I could divest myself of my power positions, which were department chair uh, at Stanford, my government committees, uh, which always led to research funds and so on, and my professional committees standing in the community. So I did that, and I wrote back to Stanford saying, look, I'm going to do this. And so I proposed that you contact so-and-so. I'd already called a contacted a couple of colleagues I thought would be good as department chair. First one declined, the second one said yes. So 
Uh, that was a natural transition. I did what needed to be done on that score and then basically prepared to go home to uh, Stanford in California and find out what doors were going to open and what, what doors were going to close. Were there any regrets in leaving Oxford? Um, not really. I enjoyed it, and as I said, Woodstock, by the way, was the name of the town, that the street called, called Duggan uh, in Oxford. And I enjoyed the time there. Didn't spend a lot of time at Oxford. You know, did that a little bit. But I basically decided that I would have to write those books another time. And uh, I needed to get myself clued in on what was going on in the British community relative to parapsychological phenomena, or what I prefer is psychoenergetic phenomena. Were there any writers, authors, professors at Oxford that you followed like C.S. Lewis? No, no, there was no one that was visible. And to look at this kind of thing the way I intended to look at it, for example, David Bohm is very well known writer and scientist who has delved into this area and has come up with some very fine things. The dilemma is you can't put them to work. You have to have a foundation, uh, had to be a new foundation, which could be made mathematical. And because if you're going to develop real change in society, you have to have engineering. And in order to have engineering, you've got to have the mathematical structure does of that, these does, unseen domains. Does, and that includes, for scientists, some sort of experimental process? Well, it definitely experimental process only gets you part way. Experiment, to me, experimental data is the truth. All right? And, and so one has to properly interpret that experimental data into a theoretical construct that fits the data and is understandable and ultimately quantitative. All of that is is needed. So again, these three pieces that I felt I had to focus on. One was the experiential development of self. And, and that really was the key because as I see it, the truth, sort of truth, let's say the the workable truth in that day and age or our present day and age comes from within. And so it had to be some aspect of the unseen universe that found a way to put concepts into my brain. No, in other words, then you are becoming the experiment yourself. I am definitely becoming the experiment myself. As far as the inner work is concerned, as far as the aspects of the universe are concerned. Now, they're different than the experimental data that we do in the laboratory, but they give rise to the design of the experimental data. And in essence, in order to go forward in a meaningful way, it was important to design the experiments as simply as you could. And one of the things that I learned very early, and I was very firm in this, um, you had to get outside of space-time. When I came back to the U.S., and there was a variety of things going on. A lot of people were sort of interested in playing in this field. Um, 
And their play had to do with pushing quantum mechanics to its limits or this kind of thing to its limits or that kind of thing to its limits. And somehow inside myself I knew you're not going to get anywhere doing that. You had to break new ground. You had to jump completely into another context. Space-time is a reality. It ultimately has to be part of the complex, the, uh, the complex that you're working with. My initial goal, and it still is my, my goal, was to build a reliable bridge of understanding that seamlessly joined with orthodox space-time science and traversed the domains of the human psyche, the emotional domain, the mind domain, and was firmly embedded in the bedrock of spirit at the other end. And to make the bridge reliable enough and strong enough that not only would normal folk want to walk across that bridge, but someday orthodox scientists would want to walk across that bridge. That, that makes that for yourself into a sacrifice. No. A sacrifice. An act of love, actually, and a joyful acceptance of what is to come for all of us. Perhaps the wrong terminology. We, we spoke before the program uh, about being able to balance between the push and pulling and the stresses of life. Yes. And the interaction with others. And we've also spoken about our physical realm in being able to move others. So essentially what you're doing is, is in that act of love, you are focusing yourself completely spiritually yes. to form a very different type of experiment. And a different, ultimately a different world, another world for people to see themselves in. How do you, looking back in retrospect from Oxford onwards, how did you see people changing around you for, for the better or for the good? You mean, how did I see it before it happened? Yes. Oh, I thought it was going to be easier than it was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to inspire people. Uh, and I thought I was going to uh, awaken the curiosity in orthodox scientists. Um, I thought only good, th pretty much good things. And it uh, didn't work out quite that way, but... but the uh, it was it was what happened was reality. I mean, it was real. The sense is people don't change easily, and the concepts that scientists hold. I mean, that for them that's their security blanket. Uh, and and so I and I didn't think deeply enough that I was going to really shake and violate what they thought was their security blanket. They didn't they didn't look at it that way, but. But in essence, uh, it challenged, I'm sure it challenged them. I know when I came back, the, my faculty as a whole tried to do an intervention with me. They all, they got me together in a big room with everyone around the table and they started to try to do a sort of intervention to take these foolish ideas out of my head. Is that, is that the ambition of the scientific mind or does it go beyond that towards oh. insecurity and fear oh. of realizing that there is something tangible 
I, I can't I can't mm-hmm. say what, but the action that they took on the one hand it was caring for my future, as they saw it, but it obviously shook them because it was it was strange for them they had no they had no touch with it they thought I'd slipped out of reality and, and I suppose it was a kind of reality. Is that still the case today? Do you think? Um, probably. Probably. Um, the, uh, as I say, people change very slowly. But you know, as I've accumulated more and more work, um, and if they have, to, if they look at it or they hear about it, they're hearing good things about it, but they still can't touch it. This is the thing. It's so simple when it's said, when I understood it, that science seeks internal self-consistency relative to a reference frame for viewing nature. Can that be translated into immediacy? Well, a reference frame of nature is immediacy. That is, the reference frame the orthodox science uses is distance time. I only ask that question because we covered this in the last program and before the program that we talked about this change in ourselves, this change in our physical reality as being a very long-term change. It could take centuries. Yes, many lifetimes. And, and there's, I suppose, uh, with uh, the, the human ego, and, and especially today when you look at kids, there's a need for immediacy so that if you don't something see something with an outcome, uh, and I see this every day, you're not going to follow that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... How does that feel in those early days when you are now faced up probably uh, to the thought that you can take this road, but in actual fact you'll never see the results in other people in your lifetime? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question and good uh, subject to look at because one thing needs to be said the sabbatical opportunity allows some leisure time uncommitted leisure time to look at something seriously that you may not have looked at before i had enough time to get deeply into this i mean i already spent many years looking at this and talking about it a little bit but to really see the scope and to see what it could mean to humankind and what humankind was becoming because they couldn't see this aspect of themselves. Indeed, most of the work that I had done, of course, I'd been a very prolific, uh, would be considered prolific uh, scientist in terms of writing scientific papers and things of that nature. But the consequences are fairly immediate. I mean, maybe not uh, uh, immediate, immediate, but basically uh, 10 years down the road, people would say, oh my, Tiller did that. He talked about that 10 years ago, and here it is full bloom now. Uh, This other uh, was very different. And I, and I recognized that. I recognized that it was an open-ended thing that could go on forever. Um, but it needed to be done. Someone had to commit to do it. 
and you had to find a way to do it and and stay with the task um, because it's a measure then of who you are when when was it that you truly found that line between mm -hmm. finding this total determination to find the spirit in yourself and and everything else that is involved in this okay. in the physical reality yeah. and every time that you come to a roadblock because of outside influences mm -hmm. you could discard them yeah well let, let that's a very important point and and there's something in the history that really speaks to that um i was very optimistic i'm always optimistic and there were challenges in the beginning but I did receive a little bit of money to do some research in that area. Uh, I uh, still had enough links to the government, various government agencies and such that they were, although they wanted to cut me off, they provided me with a bit of funds that I could, could go forward and have money to support students and such. Um, that dwindled over time. Um, well, for example, one, one of the things that happened was I was heading, I had become a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and that was a, usually a precursor for someone uh, being nominated to the National Academy of Sciences or Engineering or both. And that, that absolutely stopped um, because I was outside the pale in that sense. But that was okay. That was a price that I was willing to pay. The thing, the work went on and I kept doing the inner work and I kept doing the theoretical stuff. And, and by about the, about 1976, I felt I'd done a good, and the next step relative to the scientific understanding. And I expected doors to open, but instead doors were closing. And that was an interesting thing. And then one morning I woke up and I felt as if someone or something had unplugged at least a third of my circuits in terms of thinking process and et cetera. Um, and this was the beginning of the dark night of the soul. Um, my dear wife, Jean, said to comfort me, she said, Bill, remember that old song, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is just but a dream. And the other thing she said was, it seems as if you must come to do what's at your hand to do and do it with all your might and do it joyfully. And I thought, okay. Uh, I tried and tried. I wasn't very joyful about it. Uh, because I um, I didn't have the powers that I'd had six months before. I had enough to get by. Um, and, and it was interesting because one of the doors that were closing were the getting my own funding from the government. Before that, I'd received hmm, probably at least $10 million in research funds over the previous 15 years. And... Anyway, I, what, another door, one door did open, and it was that some people in electrical engineering that were working with integrated circuits and the materials aspects of um, 
the evolution of semiconductors to make integrated circuits. And they needed a consultant in the materials area. And uh, so they asked me, and I said, sure. So I started working with them, and, uh, and that's where the funding came for a number of years to support students uh, of mine. Uh, probably 15 to 20 PhD students were um, supported through that work over the next mm, decade, decade and a half kind of thing. And so I pursued this issue, which I recognized that that I had I had known everything that was going on in the world before that in the early in the seventies in the in this kind of area of psychoenergetic science that I choose to call it and was running various things dipping my finger in this and that and that's when I joined with Ed Mitchell to start the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Um, But basically, I began to realize that I wasn't to be the one calling the shots. I was to be a worker in the fields. And I was to do what was at my hand to do and do it joyfully. Can I ask, when you're working with these students, <clears throat> and so you have academia on one side at this point, Point, yeah, and you yeah. have students on the other right. who are most influenced and able to, I was about to say mold, that's not a right word, but who, who were most open to change of thoughts? Now, basically, the way I looked at it, usually I provided funds for a student and I would provide them with a problem or a choice of problems. And they would pick one of those problems to work on. And it was just like a consulting assignment for me to work with them and help them see the inner beauty of that problem and to find ways to understand it and to find ways to begin to love it on their own. So we're talking now about these students being involved in electromagnetic work. Of one sort or another, yes. And, and in other words, you are taking the conventional teaching methodology and you are complementing it or are you overriding it? I'm complementing it with my care for them. I mean... I had come, you know, by that time, well, since the mid-60s, I'd been a consultant to the DuPont Company, where I worked on a zillion kinds of problems for over 25 years, um, helping the people see their problem more fully and see what they could use to gain deeper insight into it and to revitalize their own uh, abilities and have joy in their work. Are there any students that you remember looking back who really were accepting of those kinds ideas? Of well, those all students are accepting of those kinds of ideas because it benefits them. Their students are vital and they're young and happy to be doing these things, and it makes them better. Um, and they uh, so these are these can be applied in anything. 
I mean, they're the kinds of things you'd use in business, working with anyone. I mean, they're all problem sets of one sort or another. I didn't, um, although I was open to sharing with them what I had was learning in this other area, I certainly didn't wish to contaminate them uh, with it. And in fact, one of the individuals in our department who did become chairman of the department, uh, and he was right in this, he, he certainly didn't want, he didn't want undergraduates or graduate students working in this area because when they graduated and went out to work in the normal world, they would have trouble in the sense that to uh, it would be looked upon as a kind of tainting. Uh, and he's right about that. He didn't mind it with respect to postdocs and such, but because that was definitely their choice. But, but uh, And I came to the same opinion that uh, in the world as it was then and still is today, uh, not a good idea. So I, I've had hundreds of people write to me about getting into this field, and I tell them, look, to get a basis of math, chemistry, and physics, find a field that you want to work in that you feel you're good at and you really enjoy, and it's in the conventional orthodox area, because that gives you a foundation where you can get employed. But keep this other alive in your heart. And the, what about the books? You had written many books. Mm -hmm. they had, You're talking about the orthodox ones? Yes, and they had been very successful, and then you you stopped that. Yes. Uh, what, was, that, was, that a, was there a sadness in that? No, not really, it's, and it's, it's in, it is interesting. The, uh, uh, <clears throat> I took an early retirement from teaching, um, largely because it was at a time I thought that graduate students were being really too materialistic. Well, there were two things. One is that in the late 60s, the beginning of the 1970s, the government funding for research became more and more applied, and the university work became more and more applied. And the students basically wanted to learn what they needed to learn to go out and make a lot of money. And I felt very badly about that the loss of the joy of doing it for its own sake. And, you know, I always would try to work with students and provide them with deep insights into three or four areas where they could be employed so that if they completed one field, uh, they could join another or another or another. Um, and as time went on, that became harder and harder to do because things became more applied and they became, etc. Et it got very much more materialistic. But I, shall, I want to go back to the, I haven't finished the thing about the dark night of the soul because after about two years, I woke up one morning and my switchboard was all plugged back in. And orthodox science was really easy. This other science, psychoenergetic science, was still very complex. But, but that was, you know, I felt whole again. And, and uh, 
the, the, the catalyst for that enlightening? Just part of the process. It, t- it, took, it took two years in me to make what transformations I needed to make inside, um, as far as I can see it. Um, and I still continued, of course, to walk both paths. But I was much more at peace with doing my orthodox path and doing what I could do in the other, which wasn't very much because I didn't have any money, so, but I could write papers. And the way it turned out is I could write things. Medical people, for example, um, often work with tools that they don't understand. Um, they know how to work the tools, but they don't under- understand them. So I, I would write papers to help them understand uh, what they were working with. In particular, these things had to do with things like acupuncture. It was new, not very much known about it. Um, and things having to do with electrodermal diagnostic systems. So, so I've focused attention on those kinds of things that would be helpful to that community. And of course, it would help me grow in understanding, which I did. And, uh, and then by 19... 19- 90, um, that's when I started doing things with the Institute of Heart Math, but it was also the time that I felt I needed to get back to finish writing the Science of Crystallization texts. Uh, I did start them back in the early 80s when I was invited to the University of Delaware um, with no responsibilities. They paid for me, and I was a big wig on campus kind of thing to be available for people to walk through the door and ask me questions and so on. Not a lot of people walked through the door. So I had a lot of time to pick up doing setting in, in motion the two science of crystallization books. It took me 10 years finally to finish those. I, I suppose then what you're saying is that that period that you're talking about, this dark period, yeah. uh, essentially... That was 76 to 78. So that was an extremely powerful and important point in your journey. Oh, it certainly was. And is that is that a point at which you could possibly hit again in a different way, oh, in yes. a different magnitude? Oh, 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 of course, absolutely. And I'm open to that because I know what's on the other side, in a sense. I only get better, uh, see see more, understand more. Um, so, sure, I welcome that if that if that is to be, and I'll pay whatever price is required, if if there need be a price. You, you go back to crystallization, and now you're going back more into the traditional scientific theories. Well, the issue is, you see, it's crystallization. I understand it very well. It's transformation. And now I'm interested in human transformation. You're, you're, you're talking about the whole supercooling aspect and everything that goes Thermodynamic with driving force and all those things that, that are a necessary consequence of that. Absolutely. I mean, it, basically, at the moment, it's, I have come in, in, my, in the scientific understanding that there are, two, there are two unique levels of physical reality. I mean, we're sort of in the science now, but, but the issue is... One is the normal electric atom molecule 
world, that is our uh, orthodox science space-time world. The other is a, I call that the uncoupled state of physical reality. And the other is a coupled state of physical reality which, which combines that one with the coarsest level of the physical vacuum, which becomes like a magnetic information wave. And, and that coordinate system is, there appears to be the reciprocal aspects, which are frequencies, not dependent upon distance and time. So now you have the merging of two, two things, and it is that second level that's influenced by human intention, not the first one. And so the power it starts opening the door now to, to the higher dimensions beyond that. So that, I don't know why I started this, but in essence that, that became very important to me. And so I took the early retirement, so I'd sort of finished the uh, crystallization text by 92. I started them basically in, seriously in 82. And and I still had research students. I had until my last research student finished up in 2000, although I retired in 98. Uh, but, but in essence, so I still did that aspect of it, but I had time now to spend more time on the psychoenergetics. I think the reason that I asked that question is that in your earlier years, you may have been pushing back the conventional mm -hmm. theories. And now my point is that now you're able with complete freedom in your, your mind and your heart to be able to go back to crystallization because you know that it's not compromising anything that you are doing in the psychoenergetic and, arena. And in, and in fact, it's not only not compromising, it is a foundation, one of the foundation stones needed. And, and that's, I think, where I'm going, is that this is even more reason why the scientific community should be enamored by this, should it, be it, involved in this. That's absolutely correct. Yes. Uh, they have to get rid of their own garbage. You know, I mean, there are many kinds of blindnesses in this world. Uh, we're all subject to them. And, and I... I feel much better about them at this point in time than I did 20 years ago um, because they were letting their hubris and meanness show uh, rather than their true greatness. I'm talking about the majority, not there were some that were always. The thing is, one doesn't, there's nothing wrong with that science. That science was good science, but it was limited. That's all. And in essence, the unstated assumption of science always has been this business that no human qualities of consciousness, intention, emotion, mind, or spirit can significantly influence a well-designed target experiment in physical reality. And that is what has kept them stuck in distance time. And the first thing that I seriously started to do when I an opportunity arose, uh, a friend who was doing some, a medical friend who was doing some consulting with a, a wealthy man up in Minnesota, um, invited, told this guy, well, uh, you should ask Bill Tiller to come and visit to give you some uh, 
opinions of this psychic information that you're getting. And so he invited me and, and uh, I worked with him on these things uh, <clears throat> and told him where I saw the flaws in things. But we seemed that we were able to work together and then one day he said, I think it's time I started supporting some of your research. This was in 1997. And so he said, please write out a, a three-year proposal. And so I picked the issue of intention and I was going to test this unstated assumption of science, and whether it was right or not in today's world, or at least the 1997 to 2000 world. This is the point at which you moved up to northern Arizona. Yes, uh, basically, you know, I started in 97. I moved to northern Arizona in 98 when I retired. Just from, from the Orthodox, yeah. Just going backwards go for, sure. for one minute. No, go ahead, yeah. When you're in the scientific world, in, indeed when you're in, in any environment, I think that one of the problems that we as humans face is a constant need for um, the benchmarks, a constant need for success, um, a, a constant need for recognition. Now, when you're when you are fully aware of how strong your spirit is, and all of these. Um, methodologies that we're going to be talking about going into the final program do those get discarded do you worry less now about reaching any target worry less about transformation of anybody around you simply with the knowledge that you know that you have it you are um, very uh, in tuned comfortable okay one thing I recognized a long time ago is that I have a constant need to create. If I haven't produced something new within the last month, I'm a little itchy. Um, it's sort of always been that way. Um, and I've always recognized a long time ago I was ahead of my time in the sense of the conventional world. And it's clearly ahead of my time in this world, but someone has to do it. Someone has to start it. And there was, I mean, the, wor the work itself is definitely a Nobel Prize character, but that will never happen in my lifetime, to me, because it's outside the pale. And by the time they get around to seeing what it opens, and I think it opens something akin to the beginnings of language. Because here we're talking about the beginnings of consciousness brought to bear in our science and in every aspect of our life and the awareness of it and to how to make it work within oneself and outside of oneself. So that it opens an amazing door to us as people. Uh, it is our future. There is one thing that's useful to uh, mention uh, before we get into the technical stuff. It is technical, but so, okay, we're at a threshold. We have the 
positive mass, positive energy, electric atom molecule stuff that we all know about. And it's distance time is its reference frame. But then there's the vacuum. And all kinds of stuff. The stuff, the bridge that I want to build is made of the stuff of the vacuum. Is it not the vacuum that is the greatest hurdle to overcome? Um, yes and no. Beyond the vacuum, what we think of as vacuum is the void. Beyond the void is the absolute universe. We are in this simulator within, within both the void and the absolute universe. They underpin totally that. The, but let's look at the vacuum and let's look at the electric atom molecule world, electrodynamics. And we ask ourselves, what are the relative magnitudes of the energies involved? Okay? And let me, I want to say, people like John Wheeler, David Bohm, and other really good physicists predicted, calculated a long time ago, that in order for quantum mechanics and relativity theory to be internally self-consistent, the vacuum had to have a latent energy of 10 to the power 94 grams equivalent of energy with each gram E equals mc squared, converting the mass to energy. It's a big number, but what does it mean? How can you put it in context that people can understand? And I finally figured a way to do that. We know, let us take the cosmos, okay? Think of it as a sphere um, with a radius of 15 billion light years, okay? Big. And we have from the astronomers the average mass density, okay, another number. You multiply those two together and you get now an energy for that cosmos, that whole huge volume. On the other hand, let us take the volume of a single hydrogen atom. It's mostly empty space, all right? But the number is something like 1 over 1 followed by 22 zeros, cubic centimeters. You multiply that by this 10 to the 94 grams uh, equivalent per cc, and you get another number, okay? Hold the one in the normal one that we're familiar with in our left hand and hold this other in the right hand. And it turns out that the one in your right hand just for the volume of a single hydrogen atom is a trillion times the one in the left hand. And that's the entire cosmos of electrodynamic stuff. You can begin... Nature doesn't make serious mistakes. So you can begin to see what is the potential of our future exploring the vacuum and thus exploring the inner parts of ourself. I mean, it's just vast, just amazing. All that we know in terms of the energies of the electric atom molecule universe, they're hardly the whiff of a fragrance of the stuff that's going to come in the vacuum as we begin to unfold it. So it's the importance here to make sure, to ensure that we can uncover that. Yes, properly to first uncover ourselves. Well, you have to uncover ourselves because it's crucial. Part of the operation that people take in this world is they think that the end justifies the means. 
That is baloney. The means you use to create the ends that you want, no matter how wonderful they are, it all creates mm, collateral damage of some sort or other. But it means that you're creating, you're co-creating a future that your children have to live in, your grandchildren have to live in, you have to live in. So we have to get, we really have to get in touch with our inner self and be inner self-managed because we have to come to recognize the consequences of the things that we do and to do them meaningfully with proper care and loving consideration for all that is because we're heading into a territory where the energies involved are just vast. They'll make hydrogen bombs look trivial. Citing an example of that? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, this, this is the future. And I, you know, these are, these are my words. I gave you those numbers. I mean, if the, if the energy of the, just the empty space that's in a single hydrogen atom is a trillion times, even, even if there's an error in the number of 10 to the power 94 grams equivalent per cc, it's, it's bigger than all the energies of the entire cosmos at the electric atom molecule level, what we know. So this is a big step forward. Opportunity. Opportunity, absolutely. And a, and a future, and a future in which human development and human consciousness can begin to play a big role because people will begin to see that they have sort of been blindsided by the conclusions of orthodox science. Orthodox science is great where it is operational, but it's not operational with anything having to do with those wonderful human qualities. And that conventional science controls everything that we do. Yes, yes. Would you... Constrains everything we do. Yes, and would you concur that everything that we see today, whether it's oil spills or attacks or social degradation, has to be completely brushed aside yes. and, and completely yeah. remodeled into something totally the, different? Because It's because if you stick to the orthodox teachings, which are fine where they're properly applied, but they indicate that humans are nothing but meat, and randomly arranged meat at that. But they are intelligent meat. They are intelligent meat, but they don't know how the intelligence comes about or how it's properly put to work, because intelligence, to be operational, requires consciousness. And consciousness cannot be touched by the science we are dealing with every day because its laws of nature are not distance time. That, that brief discussion there, to me, defines a really bad trait in human nature and that is, is a refusal to change. It's not a refusal. I mean, well, it is and it isn't, you know. I mean, they will eventually change. But because we have a body of experimental data that they can't get around, it's been done in a way that it's 
it's going to be stable. It's going to be stick in their craw if they start to look at it and they'll begin to see. And it's not a difficult change. It's not a difficult change to expand orthodox science to include consciousness and intention as effective thermodynamic variables to be applied in experimental world. I mean, we've shown that that's possible and that it opens up opportunities that are vast if they will get off their hubris course and horse and look at it. And of course, that's not just restricted to the scientific community. No, of course not. Of course, it's not. It's, uh, it's the wolf uh, in the warp of the normal world. Yes, uh, whether it's business. Yeah. And I'm sort of at this stage getting rather fed up of the word greed. Um, it's it's stating something that is so obvious that yes. we don't even need to discuss it anymore. But all of these but, but things. We, but, but in essence, we do. You see, because it is an example of what I'm saying. The means you use to gain the desirable ends you want create a future that you have to live in because it changes the future. There are consequences. Down to the personal individual. Absolutely. And so the point is that the materialistic world, what's so bad about greed? Greed, the concept of awareness of the difficulty with greed is means that you have to give value to the things I'm talking about in terms of those special qualities that make us human. And that's bound to happen. Yes, it's bound to happen. I mean, if you yes. look at the oil spill, you, you yes. look at the devastation, the ecological disaster that is facing us, the chemicals that they're using, which are, which are yep. plagued with toxins, there is going to come a time here very soon when... I don't believe it will be an individual or a leader. I believe it will be a collective consciousness that will come about out of the reality that we understand today that will suddenly, in community, yes. no, it, it, say enough. If we, if we as humans don't stand on our hind legs and say enough, then nature will force us to. And nature is forcing us to. Because this is a time where the transitions within of, the, of our chakra systems to lift us to a higher level of beingness, if they're out of balance, then it's a hell of a life to go through. But putting them in balance and then using them, which is what's in store for us, I think. That's my intuition speaking. I can't prove it yet. But I'll have the chance, I think. We're going to move on. Uh, we've got a minute left here. We're going to move on in our next program to the Tiller Theory, uh, to psychoenergetics, and really talk in detail about this, and citing, as, uh, as I've put in my notes here, some other wonderful people who are involved in functions of brain activity, etc., uh, and really get into more detail uh, about the, the bio-suit that you talk about. Yes. Um, but in the in the last minute here, uh, before we clock out until the next program, could you just give me or give our listeners a very brief summary of what psycho, uh, psychoenergetic science is about? Well, psychoenergetic science, and I, by the way, I, I talk. People can go to my website, www.tiller.org. There, at the moment, are thirteen white papers, which are free. They can read them, they can print them, whatever. There are two more on deck, and uh, it's what I will, it's the way to keep up with what 
what's going on with us. Uh, there, of course, are books and DVDs, but they have to, you have to buy those. But, but in essence, it's very simple. It's the expansion of orthodox science to include consciousness and intention as significant experimental variables in physical reality. Now, beyond those are, are the, which are, come from higher dimensional aspects of the universe. I see certain aspects of them. They will come in to the work that I'm doing right now. But in essence, I'm trying to build a ladder of understanding which goes from our conventional physical reality, space-time, and spirit. And the last 400 years, we have done a good job of developing the lowest rung of the ladder. And our work allows us to get a bit of a finger hold on the second rung of the ladder. And so we need to do a lot of work on that level before we can meaningfully do the others. We can begin to see how they form a picture that allows us to really deal with spirit and physical reality and in the process understand much more about religion's strengths and weaknesses kind of thing. And, and with the sci this scientific expansion, it just opens this tremendous door of opportunity for we as individuals uh, in science and technology. From where I sit, it looks as if we can beneficially enhance every technology that exists in the world today to some degree. With that, Professor Tiller, thank you so much again for this program. It's been wonderful. It's great fun. Be look for, looking forward to the next uh, program and we'll be getting really deeper into the Tiller theories and uh, a lot of the information that uh, you do cite on your website. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Meanwhile, to our listeners, I do hope you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can find information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.